see you all this morning. Um, we are continuing, this is our second week in our new series on relationships. And uh, at the end of the series, we're going to have a panel discussion. I'm going to involve my leaders in this panel discussion. Really excited about it. And we need your questions, though, to make the panel discussion interesting. So here's how you guys can text questions. You can text questions really for the next 10 weeks uh, throughout uh, the coming weeks. Here's how you do it if you've not done it yet. Um, you need to pull out your phones and go to your uh, iMessage deal and type in the number 37607. That's the first step. And then in the message, you type TBC Overflow, one word, lowercase, and just send that as a message, just TBC Overflows as one message. That will then enlist, enroll you like in the little system deal. Um, you're not going to receive any messages from the system except for just confirmation that you're actually in the system. And then uh, throughout the next few weeks, you can text message questions to that same uh, message thread. These could be like big picture general questions. They could also be personal questions like right now I'm in this situation. What should I do? And I'll remind you, though, this whole thing is anonymous. Um, I did it this way because I wanted to make it anonymous. And I look back on a series I did like five years ago, six years ago here at the church, and we did the same idea, but I had them text my number, like bad decision, because they're not going to be honest, like, hey, Dave, youth pastor, uh, you know who this is? And so, um, so this is an anonymous thing, uh, so I want to make sure that, that it's anonymous so that you guys will um, ask questions that are honestly on your minds and hearts. So, um, so just so you know, that's going to be at the end of the series. If you don't text any questions, then I guess we'll make the series one week shorter than we planned on. Uh, but text those questions in um, as they come to your uh, minds. Um, so I'm going to break a rule today because normally I start with a passage and I spend the rest of the time discussing the passage, talking about the passage. But for today only, um, I'm not discussing really any passage until the very, very end. It's just going to be we're going to read it. And then we're going to go home. Okay? This seems weird, I know. It's, it's not like I'm taking the Bible out of Temple Bible Church. But uh, I'm doing that because today's going to be a setup for the next two weeks. So today is like one long intro for the next two Sundays, which will be titled uh, The Purpose of Marriage. I'm going to handle part one next week. And then Mrs. Ron Slavin will handle part two the week after that. And pray for her voice because it's about shot. She's somewhere here, I think, in the room, but um, not feeling too well, among others I hear. So um, so here's kind of the main idea throughout this series that we've been looking at. The main idea for this series is that we're going to, we've titled this Vision for the Future because I want you to keep the end goal in mind. So often high school students, college students start with this question. So often you start with the question, okay, well, how should I date or who should I date? But I want you to start with the question, what kind of marriage should I want? Start with the end in mind, and then let's work backwards and talk about how it's going to impact your dating life. So this whole series, we're talking a lot about marriage and a lot of what that should look like. Um, we're going to discuss sexuality for two weeks later on in the series. What should that look like now versus later? But we're focusing a lot on the big picture here and, and then working backwards from there as we look towards how that impacts your dating life. So we're going to talk a lot more about marriage than dating in this series. Now, I was thinking this week about when I was in fifth grade. I was in fifth grade, and there was this new girl that came to our school, and her name was Jessica Howe. 
And when she walked in the classroom, she was a cute kid. You know, every, every guy in our class was like, whoa, who's this? And, you know, we're fifth graders, so we're not quite sure about all this stuff. But you at least know who's pretty. You, you think she's pretty. She walks in the classroom. And so um, you could tell right away that, that all the guys in the classroom were, like, trying to get her attention throughout that first semester. And um, very quickly, there was a guy who claimed that Jessica Howe was his girlfriend. And you might ask, well, how is that possible in no pun intended there. I didn't mean that to happen that way. But how is that possible considering you're in fifth grade? And it basically consisted of a guy just writing a note saying, I like you. Do you like me? Check. Yes. No. Maybe. Right? And he'd give her the note, and then she would reply back. And if she said yes, or even maybe, that's your girlfriend. Right? This is how it worked. And so the first time, the first, I forget, I forget the first guy that she was considered her, her boyfriend. And then um, next thing, I was friends with this guy named Daniel. And so he and I were good friends. And next thing I know, he's like, hey, guess what? He goes, you know what? He goes, um, I asked out Jessica Howe. I said, really? Said, what do you mean? I, I gave her the note, and I said, what'd she say? He said, she said, yes, she's my girlfriend. I was like, really? So a few weeks go by, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to give my shot at this, you know? And this is like my best friend, right? So I wasn't quite sure how this worked. Like, no one sat me down and said, Dave, that's like, that's violating a code of some kind. No one told me that. So I wrote her the note. I thought long and hard what I was going to say. And I wrote her this little note, and, and she checked back. She checked yes. And so I go to my friend Daniel, not really knowing what he's, how he's going to react or not knowing this is even a problem. And I go to him, and I say, hey, man, guess what? I said, I gave a note to Jessica Howe. And he goes, wait, what? And I said, and she said, yes. And he's like, what? He goes, that's my girlfriend. And I was like, well, not anymore, you know. And I didn't know how this worked. I thought he'd be excited for me, okay? So, so he got over it after like a day or two, and he and I were still friends. But for like three months, I lived in like, fifth grade bliss, all right? And this was like my girlfriend, which consisted of, we didn't even talk. We would just look across the classroom, make eye contact, and be kind of like, hey. And it'd be like, maybe pass a note here, pass a note there, whatever. But um, what I haven't told you about Jessica Howe, though, is that she had this little habit where she never just liked one guy, all right? So what she would do is she would take a piece of paper and she would write on the piece of paper the names of all the guys that she liked in the class. And she would rank them, number one, number two, number three, number four, sometimes as many as six. And she would, she knew she had it going on. She knew she was popular. So she, she would release the list to the class, and it would circulate. So if you were her boyfriend, well, of course, you're number one for that week, right? And, and she released this list of, like, one through six. And all the guys are like, you know, where am I on the list? Am I on the list? 
And so for three months, I was number one on the list. Like every week she'd release a new, a new list. And this was like, listen, hey, man. It's... No, no, listen. This was like, um, like the BCS rankings come out every Monday or whether Sunday, I guess. At A&M's like, where am I on the list? This is how it was in our fifth grade classroom. It's like, where am I on the list? And so, but one day, I get this phone call, and it's Jessica, which back then you had to, like, go to a wall to talk on the phone, okay? And it was a frilly cable. And, and it's Jessica, and I'm like, she never, we never, we couldn't talk on the phone. It cost money back then. So she calls me, and I pick up the phone, and she's like, uh, she says, David. Everyone called me David back then. David, yes, this is Jessica. Oh, hey. Hey. And she just begins to read the new list. All right? She says, I have a new list. And my heart just, like, sunk, right? And she goes, number one, Brian McKaig. And I just went, are you serious? And she said, yes. And I hung up the phone. All right? And this is how it went down. And so this was fifth grade love drama, right, at its finest. And so from that point forward, every look I gave her across the classroom was like a dirty look. It was like, you know, like that kind of thing. And this went on for like the whole year, right? And I remember like as dumb as this sounds, I remember like in fifth grade, this feeling of like rejection, just like. You know, nothing like serious, but it just felt like, yes, someone rejected me for the first time, right? And I'm sure that many of you might think, you might think, okay, that's fifth grade. I mean, no one knows what they're doing in fifth grade. That's just crazy, ridiculous fifth grade drama. But, you know, we're in high school. I mean, we handle things so much more maturely now that we're in high school. And so throughout this series, I want to just caution you for a little bit. That um, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that all of us in the room handle things that much more maturely than what I just described to you a few minutes ago. But the the admonishment for this, or the encouragement for this series, is that you need to tune in here and listen to wisdom as we unpack um, God's word. We're going to look at many different writers and Christian thinkers that have thought through these things that are much smarter than me. And so today we're talking about. Um, the problem with marriage. Because what are people looking for when they search for a husband or a wife? Are they looking for the right things? Looking for the wrong things. And so here's the big idea I want you to grab a hold of today, and it's this. The problem with marriage is that people have wrong expectations of marriage, and this affects how we date and who we date. So this will be a setup for the next two weeks. We're going to get into the purpose of marriage next week. But today is the problem of, with marriage. And so I'm going to look at three problems, I think, that are pretty prevalent in our world today. The first one is this. We, we view marriage negatively. There are many people that view marriage in a negative light. You don't have to look very far for these kinds of people. Just think of the cliches, the sayings that we have to describe marriage. Uh, the honeymoon is over. People say... Uh, the old ball and chain, right? 
as a metaphor for marriage. Or something that really gets under my skin is when I hear a man refer to his wife as the wife. The wife. And I think she's got a name. Use it, right? Or at least say my wife. Like show some possession. Like this is my wife and I'm her husband. But no, they say the wife. Things are bad when you just put an article in front of your the wife. No, you say the dog or the cat. But you don't say the wife. You don't say the wife. Or some will say the old lady or the old man. And so we have these metaphors for marriage that we, we hear in our culture. And these are um, basically looking at marriage kind of like a prison. I mean, the ball and chain just cuts right to the chase, right? It's like, that's what this person thinks marriage is, just a prison. In fact, I recently read these quotes. This is kid logic, what kids think about marriage. Even kids have this perception sometimes. So to this question, how do you decide who to marry? You've got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming, right? A kid actually said that. Next kid, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all the way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. What's the right age to get married? 23 is the best age because you know the person forever by then. How can a stranger tell if two people are married? You might have to guess based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. All right, next one. What do you think your mom and dad have in common? Both don't want any more kids. What do most people do on a date? Dates are for having fun, and people should use them to get to know each other. Even boys have something to say if you listen long enough. Mm-hmm. Next one. On the first date, they just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough to go for a second date. All right. I love this next one. When is it okay to kiss someone? Boom. When they're rich. <laughs> that girl's seven years old, man. Seven. The next one says, the law says you have to be 18, so I wouldn't want to mess with that. That's a great idea. I'm going to tell my kids that it's against the law to kiss someone before they're eight, like 26. That's what I'm going to do. That's my plan. Do you want to go to jail, Landon? No. Okay. The next one. The rule goes like this. If you kiss someone, then you should marry them and have kids with them. It's the right thing to do. Smart kid. Is it better to be single or married? It's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. Truth. Truth. How would you make a marriage work? Tell your wife she looks pretty, even if she looks like a dump truck. So I love, I love how kids think. I love how kids think. And it doesn't stop there. Like, even the comedian, Chris Rock, who you should not listen to, um, he said this quote, Do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? All right? But listen, listen, this is how most people look at the dilemma. They look at the dilemma as like, okay, single is this and married is this. 
and here's the dilemma, and neither one seems like a winner, right? And this is how a lot of people think. So I don't have to tell you guys that, that people see marriage often in a negative light. Um, and I think this negative view of the, the negative views of marriage, we joke about them, but the negative views of marriage are out there. And here's what it's led to. It's led, it's led to the decline of marriage. So now the divorce rate is now nearly twice what it was in 1960, right? In 1970, 89% of births were to married parents. In 2015, almost 50% of births were to unmarried women, right? In 1960, 72% of American adults were married. In 2014, only 50% of American adults were married. So we have actually reached the threshold now. I've actually heard it's gone further, where there are more single people in our country today than there are married people. So people think of marriage and family being like the norm. It's not the norm in our world today, in our culture today. And what this has led to is that I think people are much more likely to live together before marriage, and this is true even in the church. Gary addressed this this morning over in the main service, that even in the church, people are more likely to live together before they get married than before. In fact, uh, many years ago, I was in high school. I had a job, and my boss, he wasn't a believer, and he said, hey, can you come to my apartment help me, help me move some stuff? And I said, sure. And I knew he was, you know, um, with someone or engaged or something like that. He was about to get married. So I said, um, so the wedding day passed, and I knew he'd gotten married at that point. And I said, so, hey, Grant, I said, how's, uh, how's it being married? And he said, oh, it's just fine. He said, we were, we were living together, so it's not like anything different, really, you know? And I just thought, no, I knew where he was at. I knew he was an unbeliever. But I just thought, man, how, how sad is that? That to most people, marriage is just a certificate. It's just a piece of paper. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll live together and just figure out how things go. And if, if you're good enough and I'm good enough for you, then we'll, we'll decide to bring paper into it, right? And that's all they see it as. And so you're going to hear more and more uh, coming weeks about how marriage is a lot more than that. And it's a covenant. And it's more than just this paper contract. But many people, before they enter in, they want to go, they, they, they see this person almost like a car. Like, I'm just going to test drive this car, see how it goes for the next six or eight months, and we'll see where it goes from there. And that's totally not God's plan for what he has in mind for marriage. In fact, studies have shown that divorce rates are actually higher for people who live together before they get married than for those who don't live together before they get married. So the whole plan just backfires on people. They thought they were doing the wise thing. Let's just try this out first. But the whole plan backfires because that's not how God designed us. God didn't design us to live outside of his will and plan. And the whole thing just backfires on people, even when they think they're doing the wisest thing. And so I don't have to give you all these statistics on divorce for you guys to know what I'm talking about. Like, I don't have to give you statistics up here or talk about the jokes people say about marriage because you know the reality in this room. You know the reality of the negative views of marriage in this room. Many of you see it at home. You've experienced it. You've seen it. Some of you have experienced 
you know, parents separating or parents getting divorced. And you are sitting here today and you're like, yeah, I don't know where I want to get married ever because I've just seen a wreck. And I can't fathom doing that to my own kids, my future kids or, or whoever. And so you're, you're thinking about the future and you're thinking about, I don't know that I want to go down that road. I'm not sure I want to go there. And so um, we want you to know this morning, though, that we hope, I hope God redeems your view of what he wants to see happen between a man and a woman in a marriage covenant relationship. I hope he uses what we look at in his word up here on the stage in our Q&A at the end of this series. I hope that God redeems in your mind and heart what marriage is meant to be between a man and a woman. And I hope God does that in the coming weeks. And so I know that many people view marriage on, uh, in a negative way. But on the other hand, here's problem number two. Problem two. We believe ultimate happiness is found in relationships. So on the one hand, we view marriage negatively. But on the other hand, we believe that ultimate happiness is found in relationships. It's really kind of a strange dichotomy, isn't it? That we're down on marriage, but we're obsessed with relationships somehow. In fact, if you look across, I mean, if you go to the store today, just look at the magazine rack in the checkout aisle, the books, the magazines. When you watch TV tonight, look at how many things, count how many things that you see that are related to love and relationships. Just count them. Because the desire for love, talk about love or sex, is everywhere you look. It's in books. It's in magazines. It's in movies. And don't get me started on music. I mean, think of how many, every song that is written, for the most part, is somehow tied to love, sex, relationships. In fact, if I were to tell every musician in America today, if I said, no one can sing or rap about love or sex for a whole year, every song would be about drugs, right? I mean, that's what it would be about. If you can't sing about love and romance or drugs, I mean, there's not many songs about just going to the store to buy milk, right? Like, you can't write songs about just normal, everyday stuff. You've got to write songs about, you know, transcendent things like love and romance. And so that's what they write about. It's what connects to the human heart. And so on the one hand, we're down on marriage, but we're up on relationships and obsessed with relationships everywhere you and I look. And here's the issue, though. For people who do get married, there is this expectation that this person is going to bring me ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction. This is going to be this apocalyptic, transcendent romance that's going to fulfill my every longing and every need. And this is how we tend to view marriage and relationships. But the problem with that view is that marriage wasn't designed to do that. Marriage wasn't designed to point you just to her or to point her 
just to him. But marriage was not something so much more. And so Tim Keller, this is my, my Tim Keller quota quote for the, the, the talk, right? There's always a good Tim Keller quote. He says, why are people so pessimistic about marriage? It may be that the pessimism comes from a new kind of unrealistic idealism about marriage. But this newer view of marriage puts a crushing burden of expectation on marriage and on spouses. And it leaves us desperately trapped between unrealistic longings for and terrible fears about marriage. So you catch this? People are pessimistic because they have this unrealistic idealism about about marriage and relationships. It's kind of this weird irony. They expect so much out of it, and they feel like it delivers so little, they just say, you know what? Forget about it. I want no part of it. And so because we look to relationships to bring ultimate happiness, it actually leads to pessimism and negativity about marriage because nobody, I repeat, no one can live up to that expectation. And if you put this expectation on your future spouse, it's going to crush them. No one can live up to that expectation. And so you see the conflict. We want we want the wrong things out of marriage. I think you and I do often. We want the wrong things out of marriage. In fact, there's an article by a guy named John uh, Tierney, and the t- article is called Picky, 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 right? Here's what this person says in the article, quoting someone. Well, it started out great. Beautiful face, great body, nice smile. Everything was going fine until she turned around. All right? Next slide. She had dirty elbows. All right? This is a quote in an article, um, New York Times, or one of those New York magazines. And this guy is just critiquing this girl he's dating. Everything's going fine. But she has dirty elbows, right? And it sounds foolish, but this is like for real. This guy really meant this. And so here's the thing. If you look hard enough, you will find something wrong with everyone that you come in contact with, right? There's no one who's perfect out there for you. And I think this is where we are today. You're never going to find the ultimate fulfillment in a person. No one's going to fulfill you that way. Which brings me to my third problem here. And that's that you and I believe there's a perfect soulmate out there somewhere for you. I don't like the phrase, there's the perfect soulmate, right? Here's how most people, most people view finding a marriage partner like this. Like, I was going to get some, a couple of puzzle pieces up here. Who likes to do jigsaw puzzles here in the room? Anybody? Like 300, 500 piece jigsaw puzzles. You people are weird. Um, I hate those things, but it's just work. Like, I don't... I, that's not enter- it's just work, not entertainment. Watch a movie. It's much easier. But imagine if you get two puzzle pieces and in the sea of puzzle pieces, and this is the way that many people view the whole perfect soulmate picture. You picture yourself like your your soul and heart has a certain shape to it, and this other person in, in the sea of puzzle pieces has. Uh, she's got a certain shape to her heart and soul. And, and your job is to sift through the sea of puzzle pieces and, and find that perfect fit to your heart. And when you find her, you just know, and you just kind of, your hearts just kind of fit together, right? 
There's somebody out here, and one of the nerds here is saying, like, actually, the, those pieces fit four other pieces when you really think about it. It's like, well, shut up. This is my analogy, all right? So, so you're looking for this perfect person to match your heart, right? And we tend to, we tend to see the perfect soulmate in this light. And on the one hand, I don't want to discount the connection that I felt towards my now wife, Courtney, when I first met her. I mean, there was this instant connection, instant friendship, and yeah, instant attraction. That was all there. So I don't want to discount that and act like that's not a reality because it is a reality in some sense. But I don't want you to think about um, the one, like there's this perfect soulmate that God had, that will meet every single need that you have. That person does not exist. And here's why I think it's wrong to use words like the perfect soulmate. Here's why. Because the moment people start having conflict, what do they think? Well, I thought you were my perfect soulmate, and this isn't going well. There's conflict. We're having too much conflict, and so um, this might not be right. Like, we need to get divorced. Like, I married the wrong person. If I can just find that other person out there, that perfect person, well, then I'll be happy. And so this perfect soulmate idea leads to people being expecting the wrong things out of marriage, and it leads to a lot of divorces. Now, don't get me wrong today. Listen, because I'm not saying that there's not a right kind of person for you to marry. There are people out there who are the absolute wrong kind of person to marry. Like, you shouldn't just go marry the drug dealer in the motorcycle gang. Okay, that's not the route you want to go, right? So there is the right and wrong kind of person to be with, which we'll cover later in the series. But there is no such person as this perfect soulmate. And I think uh, eHarmony propagates this myth. Their whole deal is set up to say, well, look, if you just take this little test, we'll show you who you're compatible with. And voila, you have found your compatibility um, match. And so that could be someone that you could marry. And I think... Um, we fall into the same trap thinking if I just find someone who's compatible, well, then I'll find happiness and ultimate joy uh, through this relationship, and it's just a false promise. And so what happens is instead of seeing marriage as a tool that God can use to sanctify you when you walk with him, grow you, make you more like Christ, people think if we're truly compatible, then I don't need to change. I think men are especially guilty of this. Men are especially guilty of this. I, I debate if I should tell you this story or not, but I'll tell it to you anyway. Um, I don't like talking about my parents up here, but I will for, just for the sake of honesty and transparency. But my parents don't really have a good marriage. They're together. I think they're both believers, but um, they both have their faults. But I especially put more responsibility, I think, on my dad's shoulders for this reason. My dad, throughout my life with him, I have often confronted him, sometimes in, in ungodly ways, about how he treats my mom. And I'll say things I probably shouldn't say. Especially when I was younger, I said things I shouldn't say to him. 
And one night in a moment of honesty, he just said, you know, he goes, I just don't think I should have ever gotten married. He just sounded kind of defeated. And I think, I forget what my response to that was, but he said that to me, and I never forgot that statement, because I think my dad has always suffered from what we're talking about here, and that's when marriage gets to be too difficult or too hard, we just want to check out. And I, I give him props for neither one of them ever leaving each other. But there's a way to divorce someone emotionally. It's not physical divorce, but it's emotional divorce. And in many marriages, that's already happened many years ago because they felt like, this ain't, this ain't what I signed up for. And I think that goes back to this idea that we think there's this perfect person out there for us that's compatible and it's not going to require us to change. And this is not how God designed marriage to be. And so if you enter into this whole thing, this road, this pathway, with this mindset, it's going to lead to um, a false view, a false expectation of what marriage is, an ungodly vision of what marriage is supposed to be. And so we'll be covering a lot of this in the coming weeks. But there's a sense in which you never marry the right person. In fact, there's an article that I saw recently, New York Times, where the title says, Why You'll Marry the Wrong Person. Now, this is a non-believer writing this, and I love it when unbelievers agree with Scripture. I love that. But here's what this person says. We mustn't abandon him or her. We must only abandon the founding romantic idea upon which the Western understanding of marriage has been based the last 250 years. That a perfect being exists who can meet all our needs and satisfy our every yearning. So you don't just abandon someone. We need to abandon something, and it's the myth of this perfect soulmate, something many people have bought into. And in fact, um, I think there is a sense in which everyone's incompatible. There's a sense in which that's true. We'll talk in the next few weeks about what um, else that can look like, like what kind of person you should avoid, what kind of person you should pursue or possibly pursue. But here's the reality. Listen, every person in this room that gets married one day, you will marry someone that is so evil that Jesus had to die for them. You hear me? Listen, try this on your first date. Just try this on your first date, guys. You're sitting across from your, your, your girlfriend, you, maybe you just met, I don't know, your first date. And she says, so tell me about yourself. And you say, well, first you must know that apart from Christ... I am a filthy, evil, stinking, wretched sinner. In fact, I'm so evil that God had to come down here. Like, he had to come down here and enter into human flesh and live a perfect life on this earth. And he was brutally beaten. Then he was killed on a cross and then resurrected just to save my sorry behind. 
would you like an appetizer, right? And she's looking at you like, uh, where's my keys, <laughs> right? But listen, you will marry someone that was so evil that Jesus had to die for them. And don't forget that. This is where we're heading throughout the series, what God wants to accomplish in marriage. And these are the problems with marriage that I've laid out just three today. There's many more. And I'm praying that through these coming weeks, God's going to transform what you and I expect out of marriage. Because I think you and I expect the wrong things. We expect the wrong things out of marriage, the marriage institution. On the one hand, I think you and I want this transcendent, perfect romance. On the other hand, we don't want marriage changing us. We don't want to make us, make us uncomfortable. And so Tim Keller says in his book, he says, on the one hand, we want too much, but not enough at the same time out of marriage. You catch that? We want too much, but not enough at the same time. And so we know the story in Genesis 1 and 2 where God creates the world. God creates Adam and Eve. We see marriage is made for us. In Genesis 3, the fall happens. We see sin enters into the world, affecting every aspect of creation, including marriage. And so if you find marriage a bit complex, a bit confusing like I do, like many people do, um, you're not alone because Paul expressed the same idea in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. He says this, A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. So Paul affirms, a single guy, he affirms the, the mystery of marriage. And we'll be diving into what that looks like the coming weeks. But what's this mystery? We'll talk about that in the purpose of marriage the next couple of weeks. But for now, I want you to hear this quote where Tim Keller writes, Marriage is glorious but hard. It's a burning joy and strength, and yet it's also blood, sweat, and tears, humbling defeats and exhausting victories. No marriage I know more than a few weeks old could be described as a fairy tale come true. Sometimes you fall into bed after a long, hard day, trying to understand each other, and you can only sigh. This is all a profound mystery. At times, your marriage seems to be an unsolvable puzzle, a maze in which you feel lost. He says, I believe all this, and yet there's no relationship between human beings that is greater or more important than marriage. And that is why, like knowing God himself, coming to know and love your spouse is difficult and painful, yet rewarding and wondrous. Spend the next few minutes discussing your questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss.